Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm looking forward to talking to Tabitha Scott, who is an author and a futurist, because Tabitha, welcome to the program. I got to tell you, I have concerns about artificial intelligence, about AI, and about job displacement and things like that. I'm also worried that, I mean, AI maybe poses some, some risks to society that we can't even begin to imagine today. But... Am I wrong to say that that I, I should look at this with no more concern than I might have if I was a guy who used to un, unload ships with a hand truck and somebody comes along and says, no, no, we've got cranes that will pick up whole containers of stuff. You don't have to unload all the cargo with your back and a hand truck. Yeah, I do think there's something to be said, Lars, for this just being another form of disruptive change, whether it was Thomas Watson with IBM saying we needed five computers and now we have 6.6 billion handheld devices with more computing power than NASA had when it put the spacecraft on the moon. I mean, it's just another another form of disruptive technology. And you know what? We're already using it in ways you probably don't think about, like on our social media feeds. If you like something, then you start getting more like it. Like I might get something on hiking you might get something like social justice on yours, but it, it prefers <laughs> wow, you know whatever maybe, you're doing. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. You know, or, or but 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 the downside, Tabitha. If I loan my iPad because I do have an iP- I have an Android phone, but I have an iPad. If if I loan my iPad to my wife and then I get it back and and you know because hers is out of battery or something, all of a sudden I'm getting I'm getting uh, ads for yoga pants. And, and I don't really need yoga, yoga pants, but, but they all pop up for a while. And then they go back to power tools and guns and things like, like that that I'm at. Actually, I kind of like the targeted advertising. I don't need ads for tampons. I need ads for power tools or technology tools or whatever. Leave those other ads for people who actually are interested in that. You're absolutely right. And we, this has been happening with online shopping, whether it's Amazon or Tractor Supply Company, whatever company you're working with, if it's a large retailer, chances are they're already using AI to recommend more products to put in your basket based on what you bought and searched on in the past. So what can we do to kind of soften the blow? Because I, I like disruptive technology. I liked what, frankly, what Lyft and Uber did to the cab industry. I always thought the cab industry was kind of a monopoly, and it was deliberately, you know, sized so that the customers got, you know, had to pay through the, the nose, had to wait forever, and all of a sudden this technology comes along. It, it's a little tough then to be the cab driver who ends up with a whole lot less business, but it might, fo- fo- you know, force some changes by the cab company to actually come up to speed with the others and actually compete. I see nothing wrong with that. But are we going to hit some of these really sharp dislocations that do some real human damage to people who can't move as fast as the technology moves? You know, I think AI is not going to replace our managers, but managers that use AI will replace those who don't. And if you dig a little deeper with kind of an open kimono approach and look at what is AI, all it is is pattern recognition based on data. So whatever information you have, 
it uses machine learning to say, oh, did this work out? If so, produce more of these. Did it not work out? Then let's stop using it. Back in 2013, I was using it with smart meter data when I worked with Balfour Beatty to help military families save money on their energy bills because you could look at patterns and say, oh, you're probably leaving your refrigerator door open (laughs) and send them very specific habits that are relevant versus sending them a list. You know, has your utility bill ever sent a big list? Like, here are 10 things to try and you're just overwhelmed. So it makes everything more personal. Can I tell you, though, the part that bothers me a bit, Tabitha, because I'm a conservative. You sound like you, you could be a liberal. I don't know. You, you can tell me you can tell my audience if you want to. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, I, I, there's a group I follow called the Media Research Center, and they do they do pretty good research because all they do is numbers and things like that. And they said, huh, funny thing. When we uh, when we go in and cert, we, they take a machine of which has been stripped of all its history as though it's brand spanking new. It's got no, you know, base of, of who does this person, you know, ser- what does this person search for? And they put in a search presidential campaign websites. And all they got was all Democrats and no Republicans. And then they thought, well, we'll fine tune it. We'll search for all Republican presidential websites. And believe it or not, they got Paul Hurd, who just dumped out of the race, and Marianne <laughs> Williamson, who have to be on anybody's list of Republican candidates, not exactly at the top. And I worry yeah. that we'll say, well, it's just pattern recognition, except it may be pattern recognition through a special set of eyeglasses that has a political tilt, uh, tilt to it. Am I, am I right Absolutely. to worry about that? You are absolutely right, and it goes way beyond politics. Whoever is putting in the information, back in the old days, we used to say garbage in, garbage out, because whatever you program into a computer, that's what it does. It doesn't have the brains. And so if you have um, middle-aged white guys that are liberal as the ones programming it, then that's exactly what you're going to get you know, for your responses. And that's why it's just taking whatever data set you have and, you know, running it. So if you ran it against the Fox News data set, it would be dramatically different outcome than if you ran it against CNN's data set. So whatever data you're pulling from, you're going to get different answers and bias. By the way, among other things, she's the author of Trust Your Animal Instincts, Recharge Your Life. That's my first one. Yeah. So that's a while ago. How many have you got now? Well, my second one's going to launch in a couple of months, Powering Change, and it uses the laws of nature to kind of turn this whole thing about save the poor planet on its head and say, like, if you want to have better business, nature's got these badass rules. (laughs) If you follow them, you can make a whole lot more money, like the growth curve. And so it's very business focused and looking at nature in a completely different way. Well, we're going to have you back talk about that last question I've got for you, and that is um, what what should we do as as individuals to respond to this the fact that ai is coming at us what can we better do yeah i think what we need to do is realize that it can be a tool for anyone but keep your radar up because as the science is improving and as they're working out the kinks recognize there's bias in any system it's like if you pick up a newspaper there's bias and so realize whichever system you're using you have to understand that kind of bias going into it. And then also um, sniff around, try it out, um, you know, ask it to do some different things, find a quote, write a poem, 
um, just try it out and it will give you a little bit more familiarity with it and maybe a little less fear. Sounds like a good idea. I also think it's incumbent on the people writing the code that if they recognize their own bias on this show, Tabitha, if I bring up a subject that I have a bias on, I disclose that at the front end of my audience. I say I'm biased in favor of the Second Amendment or U.S. Marines or, you know, granddaughters with blonde hair, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm biased that way. And I understand the bias, but I disclose it so everybody knows where we're going with that's Tabitha Scott, author and futurist. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Control explain. Want to stop drunk drivers from killing sober drivers? Ban sober drivers. That's how gun control works. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website. The vote counts the same at LarsLarson.com. I got to tell you something. Routinely, I say that the IRS is the most hated federal agency in America, although I think lately the FBI and the DOJ may be giving them a run for their money. Uh, but, the, but they're an agency most Americans are not that crazy about. But one thing that you're supposed to be able to put a lot of confidence in, and that is that your business with the IRS, with that part of the government, is absolutely sacrosanct. That when you file your taxes, that's between you and the IRS and nobody else. Nobody else gets access to that personal data about your income, about your expenses, and all the other details that we'd include in there. So what happens when somebody decides to go fishing through thousands and thousands of taxpayer files and gets caught. I thought I'd let my friend Grover Norquist tell the bottom line to that story. He is the president of Americans for Tax Reform. Hey, Grover, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be with you. And it is a sad story, and it is a long story, and it's a story that's been told before and happened before. So uh, there's nothing good here at all. There was a gentleman, they believe, claim, uh, who went in and got the Trump tax returns illegally. Those were not like on the computer. Those were like in a locked room. So I'm not sure how he's supposed to have gotten that. And then same guy, they claim, uh, went and got thousands and thousands of uh, well-to-do Americans uh, tax returns and audits. And remember, this was given to ProPublica, which is a left-wing group that pretends to be journalists, uh, so that they could run blackmail people with it and threaten to, you know, expose something, you know, just give that stuff out to people. Uh, there was a press conference that Democrat senators had uh, in sync with the stolen documents. So Democrat senators knew the documents, the stolen documents were going to be released, that in fact, they were, of course, they were stolen. Nobody releases that number of documents. And 
the timing was there. So there was coordination between uh, this person who they believe or who they claim uh, did it is the a guy who was a consultant hired uh, by the IRS. And they got thousands of people. So you had to have access to everything in order to get those out. Some pe- they claimed it first, Janet Yellen and others. Well, we don't think it came from the IRS. Like maybe it, they broke into some lawyer or some accountant's office and stole some tax returns or into somebody's house. Well, since it's thousands and since they went after people who they wanted by name, they did it on the computer, which tells us there is no security for people's stuff. Two, when they caught the guy, um, the IRS didn't want to own up. They released it Friday night, the same Friday that they were having a kerfuffle about who should be speaker. Uh, And you've probably read or heard very little about the size of this just uh, because they dropped it on Friday night in order to hide it. So this is a political That's what Grover, those of us in the news business, call that a Friday document dump because it's the best time to make a story disappear as much as it possibly can. While officially you can say, no, the story is out there. It just came out at, you know, 7 o'clock Eastern time on a Friday night, and by Monday morning nobody gave a damn about it, or or, or it got buried in the airplane pages of the newspaper somewhere deep on the web. So you can still officially find it and say there was coverage of it, but it was done in such a way to give it as little public notice as possible. And worse, more... Uh, the crime of taking and looking at one person's tax returns to which you do not have the right to look or take them uh, is five years in jail because the IRS was doing this. They were going through movie stars and neighbors that had nice houses and uh, old girlfriends and so on. Uh, and they finally got caught. And the Re- Republican Congress reeled it in, passed a law during this during Clinton and so on to make this more difficult. And five years, any time you do it. And it was made more difficult technically to get into things or to get in without anybody seeing who it is. So, you know, who's looking at all this stuff. Uh, well, the guy released who stole thousands and thousands. Now, is he going to jail for 5,000 years for, you know, five years for every one of the, the thousand plus, uh, maybe be 50,000 years and many, many years. They're only charging him theft of one set of documents, not the thousands and thousands they announced that he stole. What is the message to anybody else who plans to steal IRS documents and make themselves a political hero of the left? Go ahead and do it. It's not going to be taken seriously. And Biden will pardon this guy before he leaves. And in fact, Grover, is there any likelihood that he'll at all that he's going to see any time in prison? Or is it more likely he'll show up in front of a federal judge at the and probably with a plea deal and say, all right, I've agreed to plead guilty to the single count. And the judge will say, well, for your cooperation, we're going to give you a couple of years of probation and slap you on the hands, maybe make you pay a fine. Uh, it is almost certainly going to operate that way. This person uh, was a consultant for years and years. He was a, you know, uh, someone who went after only conservatives or people that thought were were rich who should have their privacy taken away. Now, there are a couple of people, Bloomberg, 
Mr. Bloomberg, the billionaire who runs newspapers and television shows and so on, uh, he was one of the people who they went after. Oddly enough, his crime was running against Joe Biden. Uh, and uh, uh, Kevin Griffin, a uh, well-to-do, successful Republican businessman, uh, both of them are suing. And when this has happened before and the IRS has been sloppy about people's privacy, they've had to pay out a lot of money. So some of that $80 billion that they're going to steal from us and hire more IRS agents is going to be used to pay for the damage done to people uh, by this theft. This is this level of incompetence by the IRS, this level of taking your privacy unseriously. And this is the very IRS that this year started a campaign that says, you know what? We should do your taxes for you because we <laughs> like you so much. We should have access to every piece of your data, every piece of your economic life. We will keep it safe for you uh, and do your taxes. We need to know on your death tax how much gold's in your teeth. So they want to strip you of any privacy, and we know they don't take seriously the leakage of your data. So what can we do to fix this, Grover? I mean, what should Congress do? I mean, do they have to tell the IRS you have to enforce the law? Or, or is Joe Biden's DOJ just going to say, well, yep, we're going to do it as a single count instead of hundreds or dozens of counts, at least? Well, I think they should go in. They already took $20 billion away. The Republicans in the House won a fight. They took $20 billion of the $80 billion away. That was very helpful. We need to take more away and say, you don't get more money until you reform yourself. Tell us in open court how did somebody get in and get all this stuff? What, what security did you have that didn't work at all? Um, I mean, they really need to be start being honest with the American people. You, you know, we've discussed before that when the inspector general went in to look at how many guns they had and how many people were using the guns, turns out they weren't doing the training you need, that more times the IRS has shot somebody in the foot than shot a bad guy. Uh, you know, the time, number of times the gun's gone off has been by mistake more often than on purpose. And I'm not sure I'm crazy about the on purpose part of that either. Uh, they're, they're not taking any of it seriously. There's no gun safety with these people. There's no privacy. There's no security. There's no punishment for breaking the law. It should get some kind of punishment for the people at the top. Maybe if they lose their jobs and their pensions and maybe even their ability to work in the financial field. That's Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform. It's First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's my pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. There was one of those magic moments that happened on Tuesday of this week when FBI Director Christopher Wray was giving testimony before the Congress, and he was asked a very simple question. And I wanted that to be the starting point in my conversation with Dr. Curry Myers, who is a criminologist, former sheriff, and former state trooper. Dr. Myers, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much. Now, I thought that Christopher Wray, as FBI Director, I mean, he's a big deal guy, when he gets a, a, a fairly simple question from Senator Rick Scott of Florida, You'd think that the question would have been an easy one to answer. Is the United States safer from foreign terror threats uh, threats today? Are we safer than when Joe Biden took office from the day he took office? Now, it's it seemed as though Director Ray didn't really have a good answer to that, did he? No, he didn't. And the, the whole reason why the FBI director's position serves a nine year term or excuse me, a 10 year term is to protect that person from uh, being fired for speaking out and speaking the truth. So the whole reason that position exists by appointment for that time period is that you can feel free to speak your truth and let the public and let especially when you're appearing before Congress know specifically and exactly what's going on. And yet he seems to, well, have to admit that we have, and I think the way he characterized it was, he said the terror, the threat of a terror attack against Americans has been raised to a whole nother level due to the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. But that makes it sound as though, well, it's nothing that Joe Biden could have could have done anything about, except I think it's I think it's anything but that. Well, that uh, um, it, it certainly heightens it. But the, the problem is we've been dealing with this border crisis issue with respect to increase in escalation of crime um, for the last couple of years. And in particular, anytime you have problems with crime, you have the ability for people to come into this country illegally for other nefarious actions, which includes terrorism. And this just isn't, isn't Middle Eastern terrorist organizations. We, have, we for sure have Chinese soldiers that have come into this country, uh, probably highly trained SF officers, um, that have come into this country. And we already know we have Chinese police uh, offices established throughout the United States. Uh, so there's no reason to think uh, that for the last couple of years, when we have porous border situations, that any bad actor uh, towards America would uh, attempt to come into this country through the porous borders and establish uh, and embed into American culture and while they're embedded in American culture, they're going to commit potentially criminal activity, number one, to finance their goals, or they could embed in uh, businesses. And while they're, um, while they're here, they're conducting research on soft and hard targets. And so I would make the, um, the probability exists that we have many of those people in, uh, of different types of organizations uh, that are in this country, they are embedded into the United States, and they have already picked out soft and hard targets uh, to, to look at. And if Hamas, uh, Hamas is a perfect example of soft targets. They, they, uh, they had paragliders that um, 
flew into a rave party, a rave event done by uh, teenage and, and early 20-year-old individuals, uh, killed nearly 300 of them, many of them American citizens. And that's a perfect example of a soft target that was chosen um, um, specifically to enhance terror and further uh, going into communities like armed thugs and pulling people out of homes are soft target capabilities. So, uh, and then there's hard target. There's looking at um, critical uh, critical areas, looking at a critical critical infrastructure uh, related to energy, related to food, related to water. Um, so many different cyber uh, attacks that that occur, and so those are the hard targets that they're. Uh, are already designating as well. It's a, I guess it's, what, this oh, is probably the biggest concern I've had in American with the porous borders is the heightened amount of crime and potential for terrorism. Yeah, because, I mean, it's been a regular standard operating procedure for terrorist organizations to finance their operations through other kinds of criminal activity, like drug dealing or human trafficking, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's correct, yeah. And it's been known that for a long time. I mean, Middle Eastern terrorist organizations uh, started to have relationship with Mexican drug trafficking organizations way back even in the 1980s when methamphetamine started to take over. A lot of the ephedrine um, uh, and uh, and pseudoephedrine was being shipped over from the Middle East directly to Mexico uh, to be used to make methamphetamine. So this isn't something new. Middle Eastern terrorist organizations and, and Mexican trafficking organizations have worked hand-to-hand. We know that the Chinese are responsible for a lot of the fentanyl that's being smuggled into the country. They're working with Mexico, Mexican drug trafficking organizations as well, to use those routes to be able to to smuggle in. Uh, But it's not just doing criminal activity. They're using that to finance their uh, terrorist operations. Uh, let me ask you, Dr. Myers, though, let's go back to the question he was asked. Is America safer now than it was when Joe Biden came in? And he had this big, long 10-second pregnant pause, or nine seconds, and he finally said, yes, terror threats have been elevated, but I think there are a lot of things the country has done throughout law enforcement to be better prepared to deal with them. You know, it's it's it would be tough, I guess, to definitively say that's not true, but, Dr. Myers, do you see anything in the law enforcement landscape that we're doing differently than we did two years ago to be better suited to, to, to meet a threat of terrorism? I mean, in other words, you're, you're always going to have better training and maybe better tools or techniques. But has anything much changed that gives us a, an edge over an elevated terror threat right now, different than it was, say, two and a half years ago? I would say we even have a less of an edge because on top of, the porous borders and the potential terrorist threats were coming off uh, the defund movement and the attack on criminal justice infrastructure and systems. And so when you have less, about 87% of the police departments, and not just police departments, but law enforcement agencies across America have indicated they're below budgets and below funding and they're below staffing. So we have less staffing, we have less funding, than what we had, let's say, just three years ago. And so we don't have the, the labor force to be able to investigate, investigate these things. And th- this is one of the biggest concerns that I have for our country probably in the, in the last 20 years is that we are ill-prepared for not only what is going on 
from a criminality point of view, but the other actions that could occur and the fatigue of the criminal justice infrastructure is a is by design something terrorists would do. For instance, setting a group over to 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 commit a, a bombing incident in one portion of a town, and then in conducting another incident uh, just three miles away in another section of the town would be a perfect example of where the first responders would be fatigued and overwhelmed because we're lucky to be able to respond to one major incident at a time. Exactly so. That's Dr. Curry Myers. Dr. Myers, thanks very much. He is a criminologist, former sheriff, and state trooper. You got the head of the FBI admitting that America has an elevated terror threat level higher than it was when Joe Biden came in and smaller police departments and less capability to respond. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to The Lawrence Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. may talk about serious issues, but even Lars has a sense of humor. I have a joke for you. The government in this town is excellent and uses your tax dollars efficiently. (laughs) This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I love First Amendment Friday because we open up the phone lines and every subject is fair game. And I would expect somebody to bring up a major win for gun rights and the Second Amendment this week. And it comes out of one of the most anti-gun states in America, and that would be California. So I knew the guy I had to talk to about it is a great friend of the show, Dan Mitchell of Sporting Systems and founder of the Washington State Civil Rights Association. Dan, welcome back. Good afternoon. I want to talk to you about, uh, we could talk about your recent hunting trip, but I know I know we've got to get to serious stuff. Um, and that is Judge Roger Benitez out of California, who is a federal judge, but not an appeals court judge, just an ordinary federal judge, has ruled that California's ban on AR-15 style weapons, which has been in place for a long, long time, is unconstitutional. And that's a great win, isn't it? Absolutely. It's the, the the third time this law has been found unconstitutional. So uh, it's, it's reaffirming under the Bruin standards, which Judge Benitez had really already addressed in his previous decision and the Ninth Circuit decision, uh, the three panel decision uh, from a couple of years ago. Uh, he's just now updated it to tie in the specific Bruin standards. Really, we're just referencing back to Alan. Okay, so but but one of the problems event. of that is is it's going to immediately. In fact, it's already the appeal or notice of appeal has already been filed by the California Attorney General Rob Bonta. So they're going to take this to the Ninth Circus Court of Appeals, which I, I know that in past years we've said that's bad news because it's kind of a Looney Tunes appeals court. They get overturned all the time. But in this case, it might actually produce something at least that might lead to a Supreme Court decision. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing that it's being appealed because the Ninth might actually look at it and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to uphold Judge Benitez. Is that possible? 
Absolutely. Now, the Ninth has found, and other Benitez decisions has found that uh, they were, in fact, unconstitutional, the magazine ban in, in specific. So it depends on the three-judge panel that gets set up for uh, for this challenge and then how fast it moves through the system. Um, so it's great that it's going there. The, the Ninth Circuit is going to be under tremendous pressure this time around to discard their means balances means balancing or interest balancing tests on on constitutional rights versus a public good and so they're specifically not allowed to do that anymore so they're going to have really have to jump through a lot of hoops and twist themselves into a heck of a pretzel to come up with a decision that won't immediately get appealed to the supreme court and of course the supreme court doesn't have to necessarily take it but uh, you know the emergency appeal process could judge kagan who over the Ninth Circuit. Uh, now we wouldn't expect a positive ruling from her to, you know, to get involved. But if she denies, uh, you know, a quick review of this, then it can get petitioned to someone like Thomas uh, or uh, Amy Coney Barrett um, for the Supreme Court to take a, a look at this in the very distant future, in, in the very near future. So it's a great decision. It's really teeing the ball up to uh, to get hit out of the park uh, it's going to directly affect washington law in 1240 uh, benitez's decision absolutely shreds the decisions that we saw out of judge bryan on the, the 1240 challenge here in washington as well as judge Immergitz in oregon's challenge they they both used a lot of language that benitez absolutely shreds in uh, in his decision so all of those are going to uh, the ninth, and all of these cases will pretty much be heard together. And so Oregon and Washington are back up to the kind of the, the front of the line now because the Benitez decision is going to move relatively quickly into the appellate court, quickly at federal speed, which is still glacial. Well, of course it's glacial. That's how the courts work. But, Dan, I'm talking to Dan Mitchell from Sporting Systems about this decision by Judge, whether it's Benitez or Benitez. In any case, he's decided that California's ban in place for the last 30 years is unconstitutional. But here's what I find outrageous about it. So you've got an unconstitutional law uh, that is in place that violates people's citizens' constitutional rights. But now... The, uh, the courts have apparently said, the Ninth Circuit Court has said, we'll take a look at the case, but we're not going, we are going to stay the decision, which means the decision doesn't take effect. And the people of California, in this case, do not get their constitutional rights back in the short run while it's running its way through the courts. But this Benitez or Benitez, whichever it is, the federal judge in California, he actually dug into this. He wrote a 79-page decision, and part of it really tore apart the state's witness, the state witness who'd said, oh, AR-15s, they're not used for self-defense very often at all. Uh, and in fact, it's usually only a few times, 2 to 4% of the time, that AR-15s are not very valuable at all. And the judge actually took apart the witness testimony and showed where it made no sense. And in fact, he even said, because of the fact that the state's own witness who came in and said, AR-15s are not used for self-defense very often at all. And so as a result, uh, I'm going to disregard what that witness has to say. Dan, I've never seen a federal judge 
who's actually so clearly ripped apart a witness in a case in the judge's decision. Have you? I, I haven't. You know, not that I'm a scholar of, of, of judicial procedures and, and decisions, but certainly he eviscerated the uh, uh, many of the witness testimonies and of the arguments that have been that have been placed by other uh, uh, justices in the Ninth Circuit, uh, in the in the whole Ninth Circuit, you know, particularly in Oregon and Washington, absolutely eviscerated their arguments, and and did so with with plain text and with addition, you know, uh, other uh, uh, case law, um, but then took the Bruin standard and absolutely just you know spread it on there like uh, uh, you know warm butter on a piece of toast. Uh, he it went as smooth as you could get uh, with with that decision. So it, he he did a really really good job of of setting this up so that the Ninth Circuit is going to have an extremely difficult time in doing anything other than finding that this is unconstitutional. And if they do, and it gets appealed again to the U.S. Supreme Court, I certainly hope they either take it up. Or if the decision by Judge Benitez is actually upheld, I hope the Supreme Court says, yeah, we don't have to take a look at that. That one's perfectly okay. That's Dan Mitchell from Sporting Systems about this week's decision by Judge Benitez of California, who's decided that California's 30-year ban on AR-15 rifles, and by the way, I've got a bias in this case because I own several of them, but... uh, it's unconstitutional. You can't take those things away. And his, the same court has decided that bans on magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition, those are unconstitutional as well. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson the Show. Lars you're Larson listening to show. the best of The Lars Larson Show. Looking for a new way to give... Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to Lars Larson Show. Well, Planned Parenthood's initial response following the attack by Hamas terrorists in the Middle East uh, is to publish a video critical of Israel. Are they openly supporting Hamas? I thought we'd get Sean Carney on, who's CEO and president of the group called 40 Days for Life. Hey, Sean, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. It turns out that some of the initial Israeli airstrikes into Gaza actually took out one of the largest abortion clinics in the world. Is that right? Yes. And uh, the video that you referenced is awkward because they're Planned Parenthood sent it out and they're walking around. You know, it's kind of like this sad music. And this is a, a reproductive health clinic and it's been bombed by, you know, Israel. And it's absolutely tone deaf. It just shows that. Planned Parenthood sacrament is abortion. I mean, there's just no filter. So, you know, Hamas went in and raped women and cut the heads off of babies, something that Planned Parenthood endorses. And yet they're just so tone deaf. They're trying to raise money off of Israel's retaliation. 
And I thought, you know, that's the part I, we've been talking this hour because I, I got a caller earlier in the hour who said, oh, both sides should just get together and admit that they were both wrong. And I said, the people who came in and murdered 1,200 and, as you said, raped women and cut the heads off babies, we've talked about that as well, they should, you know, the, the people who had that done to them should admit, well, you know, we should have expected it. Uh, you were right to come and do that to our people. And now we're sorry. What? We're sorry we exist as a state? Uh, I don't think that one makes any sense. But this business of, of Planned Parenthood, which, as you've detailed, uh, runs one of the largest PPF, uh, I guess it's PFPPAs, you know, Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, in, in uh, Gaza, is running a gigantic abortion center. And one of my producers even said, does Islam allow abortions? And I'm guessing it does. Is that right? No. No, mo- most most uh, Muslims are are adamantly against abortion. Uh, that's probably not a very wanted uh, abortion facility. But I mean, Planned Parenthood's video basically says, "Well, how are we going to abort all these Palestinian babies if the clinic got bombed by Israel? What an injustice! Send us money. Um, yeah, send us money so we can rebuild a new abortion center in a place where you know where, where they're planning more terrorist, terrorist attacks on their neighbor." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, and send us a Taco Bell too. Terrorists love bean burritos. I mean, it's just so out of touch. It's absolutely unbelievable. Um, but it, it is believable in that it is consistent. You've you've interviewed me before on this. It's consistent oh, yeah. in the post row world. They don't know what to say, and they don't know what's appropriate, and they don't know what's inappropriate. They have left the realm of reproductive health and women's rights and all that nonsense. And they've gotten into owning infanticide, owning abortion up to 40 weeks, owning the fact that they want to deny health care uh, to a baby who survives an abortion. Um, they have just gotten so radical that now they're mad at Jews for bombing terrorists who raped Jewish women and beheaded Jewish babies. That is just, I think, unheard of. It, it is. Do they really think that they're American donors? And I'm guessing that some of their probably the more well-heeled donors are from America. I'm certainly not one of them. I hate Planned Parenthood. They're a eugenics operation, and they always have been. But do they really think that Americans are going to say, oh, gee, uh, we've got to help re- restore uh, abortion clinics in, in Gaza so that, so the Palestinian cause can go on as before? Yes, because they see that abortion heals the world, and, and they have always had that approach. It's the solution to the world's problems. When 9-11 happened, free abortions. Hurricane Katrina, free abortions. Hurricane Harvey here in Houston, free abortions. Uh, uh, Hamas attacks Israel, for, you know, abortions. Abortion solves everything. It, it is it is their, their sacred cow, and... They used to just talk about it like this at cocktail parties. They didn't tweet out videos wondering where terrorists can get access to reproductive health, and that's what they're doing now. I also think there's something else that's just broader that we see in America, which is it's perfectly acceptable to hate Jews again. I mean, we learned nothing from the 1930s and what went on in Germany and the sentiment that, that led to the Holocaust. We are merely 78 years after the liberation of Auschwitz. I was just at Auschwitz uh, recently, and and we we think we are so sophisticated, and we, like, cast the Nazis to hell, and we criticize Hitler and all that. We just think we're so beyond that, and it's a joke, and we're seeing 
how the the woke movement is a load of crap. Uh, well, and it's completely acceptable to hate Jews. I'm talking to Sean Carney, who's CEO and president for 40 day of 40 Days for Life. I mean, there are a lot of places on the planet where there's a dispute over a boundary. You know, China and Tibet, uh, China and India. I mean, I- I- Russia and Ukraine. I mean, lots and lots of boundary disputes. But where else can you find a boundary dispute where the people on one side say, Everybody over there of a particular faith needs to be dead and gone. That's the only yep. thing that will make us happy. Is there another boundary dispute like that? Because the U.S. has had its disputes with Canada uh, back in the day. Mm-hmm. What was it, 54, 40 or fight or something like that? Uh, we've had our disputes with Mexico. We actually governed a big part of Mexico for a while till we settled that one up with treaties and everything else. But can you name another place where they say the people on that side who follow a particular faith, they need to all be dead or, or we're not going to be happy? I don't know of another border dispute like that. Do you? It, no, it isn't. Excellent, excellent point that that you just made. And by the way, this isn't like way over there in the desert in the Middle East somewhere far, far away. In New York City in Times Square, they were marching in Times Square saying death to the Jews. They're doing it in our own city. There's the footage of the poor Jewish kid eating his lunch in New Jersey at a public school. These kids come up and just start shoving them and carry them off and beat them up. It's it's insane that that is 1934-35 Germany. And that whole notion that you pointed out, which is, hey, but they're Jewish, you know, that's what's rearing its head, and it's doing so at home. And you really have these awkward alliances. Basically, you have evangelical Catholics and Jews on one side, and then you have terrorists and Hamas and white American liberals on the other side and academia. It's literally unbelievable how it's how it's transpired well and the fact that there are members of congress from the democrat party rashida talib aoc and ilhan omar all of whom refuse to condemn attacks on families and children and taking toddlers hostage and taking people hostage and releasing proof of life videos all of that sean carney heads up the group called 40 days for life sean thanks so much and i appreciate you coming on the program glad to be with you on a monday always glad to get your calls at 866 hey lars answer our twitter poll you'll find that at lars larson show and of course you can send emails to talk at larslarson.com check out my instagram feed and of course you can always tell alexa to play the lars larson show honestly provocative talk for america you're listening to the best of the lars larson show vegan actually is they say cows are bad for the environment because all they do is eat plants and fart just like vegans this is the lars larson show you're listening to the best of the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, today one of the things that greeted me on social media when i took a look first thing this morning was joe biden crowing 
about how much inflation has improved under Joe Biden, under Bidenomics. In fact, I'll read it to you so you know exactly what he said. This morning's report shows core inflation fell to its lowest level in two years, down 60 percent from its peak, the peak he drove us to. As unemployment stays below four uh, percent, our plan is delivering. I'll continue fighting to lower costs and grow our economy from the middle up and the bottom out. Uh, Veronique Desrougis is the one young lady who's capable of sorting this out for us. She's a great friend of the show. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Veronique, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Lars. So Joe says the plan is working. Is it? <laughs> no. I mean, if he means that, try- that the Fed has been tr- trying to crash the economy uh, all along, to uh, by raising interest rates and making you know all sorts of loans and 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 t- tanking business investment, well maybe yes that that's if that was the plan yes, but um, it interest rate I mean inflation has gone down that's for sure in large part it has nothing to do with Joe Biden because Joe Biden has, has not done anything to free supply of anything. He's just distributed subsidies and and issues regulation issued regulation, but um, the thing that he's also hoping is people will notice that inflation at four percent doesn't mean prices are going down. It just means that the prices are not going up at the same rate they were before. And, and in fact, that's a point that I, I honestly, Veronique. I I don't think much of the president's current mental state, and I know P, I joke about it all the time, but it's really a kind of like a dark humor because it's not funny that the guy in charge doesn't seem to have a clue. But he keeps saying, and Karine Jean-Pierre keeps saying on his behalf, his presidential spokeswoman, why we're bringing prices down. No, prices no. aren't rising no. as fast as they used to, but they are still rising at more than twice yes. the rate they were the day he took office, correct? Exactly. Yeah, no, that is correct. That is absolutely correct. And so, I mean, and this is why when you hear even people like Paul Krugman say, I don't understand why people are not happy. I mean, after all, inflation has been con- conquered. Well, first, it's not been conquered because the Fed's uh, target rate is 2%. So we're like, we're we're not there. We're, it's still double. We're about double that, say. aren't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're like, well, it depends on which indicator you look and, and if you look at the core, but yeah, we, we're just, we're just way above what it should be. But it's, it's, it's because food has increased by 24% since Biden took office. And, and that these prices have not gone down. They're just, yeah, they're, they're just growing well, at a much slower rate. And, uh, and it, it's just really kind of maddening. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Veronique something because on an I'm not an economist, but if what the Fed is trying to do is get inflation under control, it seems even that fight is failing at this point based on today's numbers. Is is that a fair assessment that 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 it's kind of flattened out, but it hasn't really. It's it, that core inflation says we've still got inflation at a punishing rate. The annualized rate of core CPI is three point nine percent. As you said, the target is two. It was one four when Joe came in. Uh, you know, we're way off target by about one hundred percent, aren't we? 
And when and when you look at the when you look at the the Fed preferred measure that came out yesterday, it's at four point one one, I think. So yeah, no, I mean, so it's not it's not that it's failing; it's that it's um, it it has made some progress, but we're far from where we should be. And more importantly, this shows that actually we're kind of stuck. The headline inflation. Um, yesterday was was flat, and today um, it was um, it was it was uh, it was it was the same. And so I, I just kind of it's and we are going to stay stuck. I'm afraid at this level for quite a while. And the reason is that the Fed can't do it alone. If you really want to see progress, we're going to have to have what economists call fiscal consolidation, and that's just the way to say just basically um, cut spending or raise taxes or do a mix of both. And that's, and that's in terms of the government. But, but what happens, Veronique, if we're running at 4% inflation, let's say that describes the reality for the average family. I don't think it does, yeah. but, it, but say it's 4%. You say, are you expecting a 4% raise this year and next no. year? Uh, no. Uh, is your net, no. you know, your net paycheck down uh, I think uh, total inflation is up somewhere around 20 percent of, of consumer goods and all that. Um, and yet wages aren't nearly up as far, which means people are already bef- behind where they were economically two years yeah. ago. And, that and, is whatever you were getting in your paycheck two years ago bought so much to buy the same amount today. You don't have the cash. Yeah. And let's not forget also that if you were in the market to buy a car, uh, it, that's going to cost you way more to borrow money. If you wanted to buy a house, it's going to cost you a lot to, to, to a lot more than you were expecting. So you're not going to do it, but rents are high too. Shelter is high an enormous amount. I think it's over 40% over since, uh, since, uh, Biden took office. And, uh, and if you are a small business or if you're a company and you wanted to invest in your business, to be able to give higher rates um, to your employees to be, by basically investing in in uh, in, um, in technology or or things that would make people more productive, well, you can't do it because rates are so much higher. And let's not forget, everything is higher even for the government. So effectively, more and more of the government um, spending is going towards paying interest on the debt because interest rates are so high. And so that's that's another that's another big part where basically kind of the the government doesn't have the money to pay for the interest payment, the increase in interest payment. And what they're going to do is that they're going to borrow more money. And that that is only going to fuel inflation further. Well, it seems if they even if they say you said, well, don't borrow any more money then their only other choice is cut the services you're delivering to the public, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as much or as you can. With all, the, with all the problem that that cause causes. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, it's, we're, we're in a bad place. And, and I think people have not yet fully realized the bad situation we're in. Um, Do you think I've got one minute before the break, Veronique, and you're so nice with your time. But could we fix this if we started cranking up, say, the energy secretary, a secretary sector of the economy? 
Well, obviously, uh, having more having more growth would be important, especially in energy, which underpins absolutely everywhere, everything. Right? We want energy that's so abundant that it's too cheap to meter, and and then that means that everything else is going to increase our is going to increase our product the productivity of this country. I would love to see this. But that too is going to take time. Even even like if he used his executive power to say, you know, I lift all regulations on energy. <laughs> it's going to take time, right? I mean, it would it would he would lift. I mean, it would help. But I think kind of Congress eventually they're going to have. I know they don't want to, but they're going to have to look at the entitlement. They are. And that's going to be painful. Veronique Desrouges from the uh, George Mason University Mercatus Center. Veronique, thank you. Back in a moment, I'll get right to your calls. At 866-HEY-LARS, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. I'm not afraid of social media. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the other social media. And tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. Honestly provocative talk for America. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Kids. At least someone has a plan for illegal aliens. Back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Will the Democrats continue to push their green energy agenda despite the fact that they fail to follow their own rules when it comes to green energy? But have any of their climate policies actually been deemed successful, if this is what floats your boat, at reducing the amount of carbon that's put into Earth's atmosphere. Uh, our friend Dr. Henry Miller, who's both a doctor, molecular biologist, he's at the American Council on Science and Health, was a founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology, joins me now. How are you doing, Doc? Good, just great, Lars. Thank you. You've suggested that America's climate policies are not just a waste of time and resources, but they don't even follow their own rules. Uh, tell my audience what you mean by that. Well, not only do they not follow their own rules, but they're actually dangerous. As I like to quip, you can't get there from here with the policies that we have. So, first of all, the U.S. Uh, accounts for only 13% of worldwide carbon emissions. Yep. So if we were to go to zero magically tomorrow, India and China and other developing countries would continue uh, to create um, gas-powered, oil-powered, and co even coal-powered plants at breakneck pace and way, way outstrip uh, any benefit from our uh, 13 percent um, of carbon emissions wiped out. Um, but the the um, the feudal um, policies that are being pursued in this country include, as you know, things like uh, a, a radical transition to electric vehicles. Yep. Um, the, the problem 
with that, there are no, numerous problems with that. Uh, one is that uh, when you account for um, the uh, carbon emissions involved in uh, producing the batteries and mining the rare earth elements necessary for the batteries and then recycling and disposing of them, uh, you, you, come out, you come out behind until uh, more than 10 years into the life of an electric vehicle. It's about 10 years, uh, considering a, um, driving about 7,000 miles a year, until you break even. Uh, but that doesn't and, and by you know, the way, Henry, I don't know if electric vehicles will do the same as, as or will have the same history, but the average life expectancy of a U.S. vehicle, the average vehicle on the road right now is 13 years old. So if you say, well, you break even at about 10 years, so that means you get three years of benefit uh, on average before that vehicle simply quits or is junked? Well, th that would be on the basis of, uh, you know, the 13 years is probably uh, averaging 12,000 or so miles a year. So you, okay. might, you might get a little bit more mileage, but, but it's still... It's still um, futile, and it's not what we've been given to expect. The other thing that, that even that calculation doesn't take into consideration is that um, electric vehicles, are, particularly trucks, are much, much heavier uh, than uh, gas-powered vehicles because of the batteries. And so they're harder on highways and harder on city streets. And uh, They're also and so harder on tires, and tires are made of oil, aren't they? Exactly. They're, they're uh, petroleum products. Uh, so th this is just not a, uh, it's not a solution. It's a virtue signaling uh, by people like uh, Gavin Newsom and Joe Biden and uh, Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy. And speaking of Jennifer Granholm, uh, to show you how ridiculous uh, this, uh, this predilection, this ob obsession with electric vehicles is, uh, a few months ago, she proposed that by something like 2032, um, the U.S. Army should have converted all of its vehicles to electric. <laughs> and, and all of I its mean, vehicles, including its fighting vehicles, like armored personnel carriers and it, tanks? Exactly. And there's a, one, there's a wonderful cartoon that I think appeared on Issues and Insights uh, of a, an Abrams tank uh, stopped in a small village somewhere, and the uh, tank commander is saying to one of the villagers, uh, could you direct us to the nearest charger? And that's crazy. But, you know, it's and I guess, Henry, it, it also requires us, I mean, a lot of the rarers, as you said, are, are, are mined overseas. And, and even when they've identified, there's a massive new lithium deposit that's been identified on the northern Nevada border. And it promises, promises, to supply a huge amount of lithium, which is one of the things they need to make the batteries. The problem is the opponents, the environmentalists, they've already lined up to start bringing the lawsuits to stop us from mining it. So they're not even going to let us produce our own materials from our own country, even when it aids the cause they claim to be in favor of. And that's only one example of this backwards thinking. Uh, you'll recall that a month or two ago, uh, President Biden declared uh, a national uh, park, a national preserved area yep. of a million acres, a million acres that was the, uh, the most productive site of uranium mining in the United States, which, of course, we need for nuclear power plants, which 
probably weren't going to be built anyway, but should be. So, and and then we have uh, our policies toward oil, toward oil exploration. Again, discouraging it, discouraging exploration, discouraging the pipelines that we need, and requiring that we we ship it in from abroad. Not only enriching uh, foreign nations, but also. Uh, it contributing to CO2 emissions by the tankers that need to bring it in. So this is idiotic in every, every conceivable way. Well, in fact, even as you're saying that, Henry, the Biden administration is trying to negotiate with Venezuela, saying, in effect, we have our own oil. We, we make it. We bring it out of the ground cleaner than anywhere else in the world. We burn it cleaner. We have modern automobiles. But we want to get Venezuela to supply us the oil that we won't supply from our own resources within this country. It, it's just, it makes no sense at all. It's criminally stupid, Lars. It's criminally well, Is there any stupid. chance the scientific community could actually take a sensible role in this? Because so far, what I see is major universities have come out with all these studies saying, you know, the climate, you know, the, 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 uh, the planet's going to come to an end. Global warming is out of control. The only solution is to is to crash our economy and ignoring, as you pointed out, that China and India and other countries, they aren't just going to keep producing CO2. They're going to increase their pollution. Even under the Paris Climate Accords, their increase in pollution, as I understand it, goes all the way to 2035 before it flattens out. So we're going to crush our economy so China can build its economy and produce even more CO2 as we're fighting for every last you know ounce of CO2 out of the air in America while they're just dumping it into the air to beat the band. Exactly. I, I encourage your listeners to hunt up a, um, an, an interactive um, way of determining what interventions can have what effect on uh, global climate change. It's called En-ROADS, E-N-R-O-A-D-S, produced by MIT and some others. And it gives you an idea of how futile many of the uh, intervent, proposed interventions are, such as electric vehicles and uh, converting to wind and solar. You just cannot get there from here. No, and in fact, the, the one logical question, Henry, that I ask everybody, I say, where are, all the, where are most of the solar panels made? And they said, China. And I said, well, then why isn't China using so They are using some, but their biggest new supply of electric energy is building a, an average of one new coal-fired electric plant a week. And they've been doing that for several years. They expect to do that for several years. And you say, well, if solar is, is the smart way to go, you don't have to buy the fuel, you don't have to mine the fuel, you don't have to ship the fuel, and they make solar panels, then why don't they use their own solar panels? And the answer is they understand that a big, vigorous industrial economy like China or like America cannot run on solar panels. Henry Miller from the American Council on Science and Health back in just a moment. You're listening to the best of the... Message from Lars. I'd like to apologize to anyone I've not offended yet. Please be patient. I'll get to you shortly. Who's next? 
This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday, and the Pope and the Catholic Church have now endorsed same-sex couples, except there are more than a few little caveats that go with that. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But first, on a Monday, glad to get your phone calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer, and with topics like the ones we have on tap today, I have a feeling I'm going to get more than my share of naysayers today. If you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. You can always vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand new question of the day every day from the news of the day, and you can find it a couple of places on X or Twitter if you'd like that better, uh, at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Glad to be with you. I got to tell you, though, uh, I guess I try to be as transparent with you as I can. I do believe in the book. I believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm not crazy about the Catholic Church. I happen to be a Protestant. Uh, I, I guess whatever you want to believe, except uh, for the idolatry part. But but that's a subject for another day. But this is what greeted me as I woke up early this morning. Pope Francis has issued guidance on Monday. So remember, I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not Catholic. It allows priests to bless same-sex couples, as the Vatican says, in an effort to broaden the classical understanding of pastoral blessings. Well, I'm a Protestant, as I said, but the Catholic Church is one of the single most powerful institutions on earth, built on the doctrines of men and lately not so much on the book. So if you're wondering, number one, Lars, why does this matter to you? Because the Catholic Church is a big, powerful institution. And number two, what business is it of yours to comment? Well, I happen to be an American citizen, which means I have the right to form my own opinion and even give voice to it. So that's my answer in advance to any naysayer who says, why does this bother you so much? Because I know the Catholic Church holds sway over a tremendous number of people, not just in the United States, but on planet Earth. And lately, Again, it's my impression the Catholic Church has been acting like a political organization more and more in recent years. And with the kind of horsepower that the Catholic Church can command, vast sums of wealth that they don't spend on the poor, uh, vast luxury uh, for those folks at the top like the Pope. And, of course, they're insulated because, oh, heaven forfend, you should ever say anything critical about the church. Well, guess what? With an American First Amendment, I feel I can talk about whatever I want as long as I keep my comments sensible. So, the Catholic Church that says that homosexuality itself is sinful, the behavior is sinful, but it will now give its blessing to two gays who live together. But the Church says the blessing won't be given unless the gays agree not to take the blessing as an endorsement of anything that resembles same-sex marriage. So... Again, they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too. They want to say, no, marriage is only between a man and a woman, which I think is the probably the point of view of the vast majority of people, not just in the United States, but on planet Earth. But they want to say, no, marriage is only a man and a woman. But for you gays, as long as you're willing to uh, take this as not an endorsement of gay marriage, but only an endorsement of you living together and having sex outside of the bounds of marriage, that's okay. So the church is now becoming even more schizophrenic than usual. And ordinarily, I don't give that much mind to people who are schizophrenic or even institutions that behave in a schizophrenic manner. 
But when you behave that way and you are immensely powerful on planet Earth, I think it's a concern for all of us. And here's what they say. They say gay individuals will say we can be blessed by the Catholic Church, but it can't look anything like marriage. And that just doesn't make any sense. And here's what occurred to me almost immediately. I want you to imagine this. Imagine that here in the United States, let's keep it in our culture because it's easier to talk about. Imagine that a young man and a young woman, both of them Catholics, they've decided that one of these days they're likely to get married, but not right now, but they want to live together. So they go to their Catholic priest and they say, Father, would you be willing to bless us living together? And of course, I I would expect that the priest would say, well, since I understand the definition, the working definition of living together is not a platonic or celibate relationship, of course I'm not going to endorse that. I'm not going to give you my blessing for that, because the church's position is that sex outside of marriage is wrong. But apparently now, as I said, they're acting in a schizophrenic way. The Catholic Church has decided that for heterosexuals, it is sinful for them to have sex and live together outside of marriage. But for gays, it is okay. It will even get the blessing of the Catholic Church. Now, again, if I get naysayers today and one of them offers to explain that seeming contradiction, I would be glad to hear the explanation. Here's what National Review says. The Holy See's new guidance, they say, does not undercut the traditional doctrine of the church about marriage. Really? So two gay guys can live together and have sex. They're not married. If if they're having sex, it's sinful in the eyes of the church, but the church will give them its blessing. And they say the author of this new policy pushed out by the Pope today is Cardinal uh, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez. He says it merely expands church teaching on who can receive blessings to be more welcoming. Now, can I give you a suggestion? I think the book is the word. And I think that religion's a man and doctrine's a man, just to get into that area for a moment, that's where you run into trouble. When you say, we've got this book, and it has a set of rules for life, it suggests to us that all of us are fallen, all of us are sinful, and that we need to come uh, to terms with that. We need to say, I've repented of my sins. Now, what's crazy is when the church then says uh, that the Catholic Church says we're a Christian, you know, a Christian religion. But then they say, but we're going to bust the rules of the book because we've written our own rule book. That is the kind of thing that we have been warned about literally for about 2,000 years, saying doctrines of man and religion are the problem. The book isn't the problem. The word isn't the problem. The, the, the religions are a problem. The Vatican's letter is one sent, believe it or not, they say it's to clarify one that was sent out by the Pope in October. So he sends out, he's almost like Joe Biden. You send out one message, and then a few weeks or a couple of months, you say, well, I better clarify that because I'm sure that people probably uh, will think of it that way. Until Monday, the church barred blessings on same-sex couples, as they say, God cannot bless sin. So now the Catholic Church has said, we want to be more welcoming. Do you know what usually happens then? That happens because religions of men are based on the three things that motivate most human activities, money, sex, and power. 
So now we've got a two, two out of three ain't bad. Money and sex involved in this. The church says, why, sure, we can put a blessing on that kind of sin, as long as it means that we can reverse the decline in the number of Catholics on planet Earth. Figure that one out. I'll be glad to take the naysayer calls. Glad to get your calls, too, at 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson the Show. Lars You're Larson listening Show. to the best of The Lars Larson Show. When it comes to health, we're all on our own. It's Friday, Friday. Friday on my mind. Focus is Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And there's a question about whether or not America right now is headed toward a 1980s-style housing recession, as some of the experts out there are saying. And I think we should be worried about that because you understand that an awful lot of things that have been damaging Americans up to this point, massive inflation of consumer prices to the point where your paycheck is worth about 20% less in real spending power than it was just three years ago when Joe Biden took the oath of office. But imagine this, what happens if we go into kind of a housing recession? Because it not only affects people's ability to buy a house, to be able to sell the house they currently own, where most families have the greatest amount of equity that they're ever going to have, other than perhaps a 401k. A house is one of the best ways to accumulate some kind of wealth that you can carry into retirement or even pass on to your kids. So that's a big problem. It's also a problem because construction and home construction is one of the biggest employment industries in America. So I thought I'd talk to our friend Nick Shivers, who's one of the great supporters of this program with his real estate business, the Nick Shivers team. Nick, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here, Lars. You've been warning me that some things are changing in the housing market right now nationwide, and they're not not necessarily good, uh, either for sellers or for buyers. Yeah, we can we can look at is 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 who's worse, Paul Volcker or Jerome Powell. Um, let's look at. I the know there was a, a big, yeah, it was, there was a big article on Forbes about us going into the 1980s style recession for homes. I would already say that we're in a recession for uh, in the home industry, factoring in title companies, mortgage mortgage industry, and also real estate. But let's look at what is similar to the 80s. Number one, interest rates are high. Affordability is low. There's been a slump in home sales. Currently, we're about 30% down nationwide and locally. Um, Compare that to the 1980s. They were only down about 12.5%. And then another thing that you had mentioned, Lars, is new home sales are slowing. Why? Because the cost of materials are outrageous and interest rates to get those loans in order to build those homes are up. So there is a slowdown. Now, I think it's important to look at what is different and how that could affect us. So let's look at two things, Lars. In 2023, only 8% of all home mortgages 
were adjustable. In the 80s, 50% were adjustable. That's a big deal. And the reason that's a big deal, Lars, is I don't see us seeing a massive, like, have to sell upside down issue. Um, the biggest problem is there's just not enough homes to sell. So we aren't going to see affordability getting any better anytime soon. Now, are there any of those factors that we could actually change? And I'm not talking about the Fed. I hate the Fed, and I didn't like Powell, Powell and I don't like Powell, and Volcker, the former uh, Fed chief, was, was bad as well. But there have to be some factors in there we could change, except that if it comes down to what? Materials, concrete, lumber, and things like that, and labor, which is not going to change because it, it, suggesting that people do the work for less uh, when they're already getting hammered by inflation doesn't work. So are there any other things that we could change uh, that would make housing more affordable? And I've got one idea well, in particular that you may have already guessed, Nick. Yeah, well, bureaucracy. Um, yep. They just factored on the West Coast. This is the West Coast. 29% of the cost to build a home is local and state bureaucracy. 29%. So you could take, well, I don't know what a typical house in California is, but say a typical house in Los Angeles is probably around six or $700,000. Say it's 600000 uh, top to bottom. If you could cut out 29% of that, you might be cutting out over $150,000 of the cost of that house on a new house. Yeah, it- you know, Lars, I just saw the thing about Gavin Newsom raising the uh, minimum wage to $20, and then all the fast food restaurants just raised all their prices because they can't eat it. I mean, it just they, they want affordable housing, but they continue to make it very difficult to build anything without all the rules and regulations to push prices up. It just in a utopian world where you don't have to make money, which is maybe the government. Yep. That works, but it doesn't work in real in the real business world. Well, and if somebody is going to get 20 bucks an hour for handing out hamburgers at a fast food joint, what is the person who knows how to how to how to frame a house or how to pour and finish concrete or how to install rough plumbing or rough electrical or or furnaces or anything else? That person's got to be demanding a whole lot more if he says, hey, the burger flipper is getting 20. You're not paying me 25 to go out to a skilled job. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, they, they keep saying they want to get inflation down because, as we know, Lars, inflation kills middle America. It kills middle America, and it's wiping out our middle class, which is not a good thing. Um, but, but they don't do anything to solve the problem. They, they, they say, okay, let's, let's put a recession in place. Cause Jerome Powell said that that's what we, we need unemployment to go up. Okay. But, but on the other hand, they raise wages in, increase the cost of, uh, of food. I mean, that, that, you know, it's utopian, not common sense is what I would say as, as a blue collar kid. Well, Nick. Look, I understand I'm not an expert in construction or in regulation of housing, you know, house construction. But I wonder if somebody would ever figure out how much of that government bureaucracy is actually necessary to make safe houses and how much of it is just government largesse, you know, where you've just got bureaucracy because they can do it. 
because they can say, you want to permit to build a house? Pay us $30,000 and pay this much for this and that much for that. How much of it is about the actual practical purpose of building a house and how much of it is we can charge it because we can? Yeah. You know, one thing I, we, we keep hearing, I think Jerome Powell even said, he goes, well, remember, interest rates were at 12 to 13% in 1980 to 1983. Yep. Lars, our average home price in Oregon is $490,000. Back in 1980 to 1983, it was close to 65. Yep. It's a big difference, isn't it? 700%, 700%, 800% <laughs> increase. Yeah, big difference there. That's Nick Shivers. He's one of the great supporters of our program with his real estate business called the Nick Shivers Team. Nick, I always appreciate the insights you give us. And I'll tell you what, my first move would be to say to government bureaucracies, you either need to give a holiday from all of that regulation. I don't mean don't inspect a house that's under construction, but cut off all the extra charges where government simply charges because they can get away with it. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. This musical message to anyone who wants to indoctrinate our school children. Hey, teacher, leave kids alone. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and the numbers are absolutely stunning. We know that more than 120,000 people died from opioid overdoses last year, about 73,000, the majority of that, from fentanyl that's coming across Joe Biden's wide-open southern border. So I thought we'd talk to Greg Sindelar, who's CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, about how we get after this problem, and do we have to wait for Joe Biden or somebody who replaces him, like Donald Trump, to actually get serious about the border before we can make a meaningful dent in the fentanyl trafficking. Greg, welcome back to the program. Lars, thanks for having me. So do we have to wait till the border crisis is solved? Because there's no sign that Joe Biden's changing course on that. Well, there I, I should take that back. There are a couple of signs in the last week uh, that he seems to be making minor changes at the border. But for the most part, it's wide open borders. Do we have to solve that one before we can stop uh, fentanyl overdoses from taking tens of thousands of lives? Yeah, I, I, Lars, I, I believe so. You know, we, we can't wait because we know that the, the federal government, the Biden administration is unwilling to do anything. As you said, maybe they found a, a little religion. I think it's more related to uh, uh, the political hammerings that they're getting. But, you know, if, if we don't do something and in particular being here in Texas, if Texas doesn't do something, then then these uh, drugs are going to continue to come across the border. We know where they're coming from. They're the, the, the materials are coming from China to Mexico being made and then coming across the, the border here in Texas and, and other states along the southern border. And, and they're, as you talked about in the intro, they're just killing thousands and thousands of, of Americans. 
Well, and and that really does put it squarely in Joe Biden's lap. I mean, he, his brain may not be in charge, but but he, they're landing in his lap because I've said, I don't know how many times, well, why doesn't he get on the phone to Chairman Xi, his buddy in the communist, you know, buddy, communist Chinese buddy in Beijing and say, you're capable of doing lots of things in your country, even things we aren't capable of doing in the United States. Uh, happily so. You can lock down entire cities. You can you can weld people inside their apartment buildings when you want to. Can you stop the fentanyl from coming into our country? I, I think of this as something the Chinese are likely doing uh, but deliberately, that they're saying, yeah, let the drugs flow in there. It'll weaken America. Joe Biden could make an international issue of it. He chooses not to. And he could work on the border. If he achieved the same numbers as Donald Trump, we could largely shut down not just the entry of illegals, but also the entry of illegal drugs. But he refuses to do it. Yeah, Lars, you're you're absolutely right. And and I think the problem is that this is such a moneymaker for not only the Chinese, but the, the cartels and thereby the, the corrupt Mexican government. That's basically, a, I would call it a failed narco state at this point that, you know, the economic uh, incentives are there for them to continue to do this. The political incentives are there for the Chinese to want this. You're absolutely right. Like it, it harms Americans. And I think that that is something that incentivizes them to do this. You have seen some pressure put on by the, the American government. You've seen uh, the Wall Street Journal reported, I think it was earlier this week or last week, that the Sinaloa cartels is at least trying to do some public showings of that they don't want to be in fentanyl trafficking anymore. But uh, that's as they say in 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 the the reporting, like for how long? It it just seems like it's show, and everything around the border seems like it's show, and that's why it's important that states like Texas uh, stand up and actually do something about it because the, it's clear that no one else is serious about it. Well, what is the something that actually works? Because I've seen them distributing Narcan, so that the, I guess you can catch somebody's. I mean, I've been talking about Narcan and and other drugs like that that are used to to temporarily counteract the effects of opioids for literally decades on this program. But that's not a long-term solution. You save somebody from one overdose doesn't mean they won't go back out and, and, and get overdosed again, because if they're a drug addict, if they're addicted to the stuff, they're likely to go back to it. Now, they won't delib- deliberately, I think, end their own lives. But what's, what's the bigger solution than just simply trying to save people from overdoses? Well, the bigger solution is you have to actually secure and have operational control of the border. And so, you know, we had that obviously in the, the Trump admin and, and, and this wasn't as big an issue in the, and the way that they were, the cartels were moving, this stuff was getting a lot, uh, is a lot more uh, difficult for them. And you probably never completely shut anything out, right? As you know, Lars, but you can do a lot to do that. So Texas is looking at several things. Obviously we're building wall. We're putting, uh, they're trying to put buoys in the water. The federal government is trying to stop us from doing that. But one of the things that you have to do is you have to not only stop the fentanyl coming across, but you have to start, stop the, the, uh, the migrants coming across as well, because they use the migrants to suck up resources to then bring the drugs around it so that they, so those go through undetected. And so it, you have to really, uh, st- uh, clamp down on both. And so Texas is in a special session right now. There's several laws that they are looking at of, of being able to finally do things that the federal government's unwilling to do right now, but resting and returning um, uh, folks, building more barriers, putting up more buoys and, and stopping the flow of the, of the, the, the human, uh, the, the, the humans coming across, but also the drugs that are coming across uh, with them. And I think that's the only way you can do it is you have to take back operational control of the border. 
Now, an awful lot of this is hitting at, at fairly young people, including people in high schools, right? Some of these people are overdosing literally at the high school. I mean, at the risk of suggesting something you might not expect from a conservative, but let me ask you a legal question first, Greg. If I worked there at Texas Public Policy, would you have a right to come and search my desk if it, if it was there at the offices of Texas Public Policy? Absolutely. It's written in yeah. our policy manual, it's, and, it's, and you can do that your property, too. right? Yep. Yeah. yeah so, and at the schools, we haven't literally talked about this in a, in a big way in decades, but schools used to routinely search lockers. And when people objected, they said, hey, it's school property. You bring something on school property, we find you with contraband. We have a right to search the locker. So, I mean, would that kind of thing start to at least push some of the activity elsewhere or maybe r- slow down some of the, you know, if you told kids you bring drugs to schools, your school, you're going to get caught. We're going to turn you over to the police. There are going to be consequences. Would that be one thing that's within reach right now? Absolutely. You know, Texas just passed a law that if you're caught vaping, you know, you're the, the penalties uh, for kids. If you're caught vaping in a school, the penalties are are pretty extreme, and so there's no reason that you you wouldn't want to tie it to similar things, and there's no reason that you wouldn't want to up the police presence. You know, one of the things that the the state of Texas is trying to uh, increase is their funding on school security. Well, it's not just about protecting schools from these uh, deranged lunatics who who want to uh, maybe shoot up a school, but it's also about uh, protecting uh, kids from things like like fentanyl and ensuring that you have a presence to keep these kids safe. So there's absolutely things that can be done and, and should be done now. And I, I, I do want to give credit to, to, to the governor and the legislature here, because it looks like they're, they're trying to address these and fill in the gaps that of the, the, the things that the federal government's unwilling to do. And, um, and our communities, we have to do it because you, you're absolutely right. Like this is a huge issue for our kids and they don't know, you know, they're, they're, they get exposed to these drugs. They think it might be Adderall or something else. And it turns out to be laced with fentanyl and they die. You know, it's the number one killer of, of uh, uh, adults in, in this country. It's, it's one of the top killers of, of, of kids. And it's the number one thing causing drug overdoses in kids. And, and it, oftentimes they're not even trying to take fentanyl. They don't even know it's in there. And so we have to um, start providing a lot more uh, security and making sure our schools are safer for our kids. I guess I'm just wondering, Greg, that this is becoming so common. That it doesn't, I mean, to some extent, it doesn't even make the news. When you get a pattern of it, like three kids all overdose at once, sometimes you get a news story. But, you know, and I look for solutions that are within reach and, and are not expensive and don't require legislation. You got a good school superintendent in Texas? Oh, yeah, we have several good school superintendents what, in Texas. No, but what would happen if the, state, if the state school superintendent said, I'd like every ISD every morning in the morning announcements to come on and every time a school-aged child of any age, even not high school age, dies from fentanyl, I'd like it. I'd like the principal to make note of it. You know, today we lost this 18, you know, and, and make note of it by name. Put their pic, you know, not necessarily picture, but put their name up so that if every every few days in a public high school you heard another high school age kid died because of fentanyl. When you say the kids don't really have this awareness, this is killing people. If you started telling them every few days, yep, another one. And this is the 42nd death of a high school age uh, child or a school age child in Texas as a result of fentanyl. Maybe we could get their attention. That's Greg Sindelar, who's CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We'll be back with your calls in just a moment. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. 
men and the people who love you. People always ask Lars if he wants to run for public office, like president. Do you know how much power I'd have to give up to be president? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I didn't want to scare you too much by suggesting to you that there are parts of our government that have decided that if you're a conservative, if you identify with MAGA, make America great again, if you plan to vote for Donald Trump, that the Joe Biden DOJ and FBI and other federal agencies, including the IRS, might actually come after you. Well, there's a guy who knows that as well, and he's a good friend of the show, Dinesh D'Souza, best-selling author, host of the Dinesh D'Souza podcast, and he's made a number of movies, including 2,000 Mules, but there's a brand new one called Police State. Dinesh, welcome back. Lars, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to do it. Are we turning into a police state? I think we're moving in that direction. I wouldn't say that we are a full-fledged police state, but... So many of the basic rights and liberties that I took for granted when I first came to America, this is in my teens going back to the late 1970s, so many of those rights are now in jeopardy. I mean, let's just go down a quick list of of the Bill of Rights, the right to free speech, uh, the right to uh, freedom of conscience or religion, the right to assemble, the right to petition the government for grievances, equal rights and equal justice under the law, Well, ask yourself, are any of those rights now totally secure? No. So the the pretext might vary. You know, we're blocking you from going to church because of COVID, and we're censoring you because of January 6th. So while the reasons given might, might change, the simple fact of it is that the kind of defining features of police states, which is censorship, surveillance, political targeting, political prisoners, the effort to kind of create a one-party state, all of these things that we see in North Korea, we see it in China, we saw it in the old Soviet Union, and these elements are now present, manifestly present in the United States. Now, but one twist, Dinesh, and that is before we get back to talking specifically about what you're going to say in police state uh, in this new movie of yours, but... In the past, for decades, it was the political left. It was the Vietnam anti-war protesters. It was people in Hollywood. It was all those people who were very concerned from the left about politi- about censorship, about free speech, about uh, you know freedom of association. Say, going back to the HUAC Commission hearings on are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I don't identify with the Communist Party. I, I I don't like the Communist Party. I don't like the way it works in other countries. But if you want to belong to a crazy group, go ahead, belong to a crazy group. How did the left suddenly become the biggest uh, purveyors? of this kind of censorship and attempt to take people's civil rights away? Well, I think the answer is that the the left that was a champion of free speech, going back to um, the Berkeley free speech movement, for example, uh, or the efforts to fight for free speech laws to widen the parameters of acceptable speech, really I think those activists meant we want free speech for us. (laughs) They did not mean that they were committed to free speech on principle. And the proof of that was that the moment that they began to get power in the universities, for example, they began to uh, put in speech codes that would restrict what other people could say. So they wanted the freedom to criticize, but not to be criticized. And, uh, And what we have now is 
sometimes marching behind the banner of liberalism, a very illiberal gang that is in league with the FBI. I mean, again, go back to the 60s and 70s. The left was against the FBI. They were against the CIA. They were the propelling force behind the Church Commission, which investigated those agencies. And now you find that the, the media, uh, the activist left is cheerleading for the FBI. They, they go gaga every time some 68-year-old grandmother is put into handcuffs because she wandered into the Capitol for six minutes on January 6th. And, and by the way, I'm talking to Dinesh D'Souza. He's a best-selling author, lots of great books that he's written, but more recently, 2,000 Mules, about the 2020 election, and now the new movie called Police State. So how do we push back against this? Because, Dinesh, I want to continue to exercise free speech, and yet I'm told on almost a weekly basis, I hear, well, I identify with MAGA. I guess that makes me a target of the DOJ and the FBI. So people are being told you're going to be targeted if your politics are not what we want them to be, we being the left. And we've got to realize that this is a, an apparatus that stretches across the government, but it also stretches into the private sector and the nonprofit sector. Just look at censorship, for example. The institutions involved are the following. Academia, the media, the digital platforms, nonprofit groups, and about 40 agencies of the federal government. Very often what happens is some academic makes a list of objectionable people who need to be banned, which probably including you and me. Then somebody in the Biden regime will grab a hold of that list and classify it. If it's about COVID, it'll go to the CDC. Uh, if it's about election fraud, it'll go to CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. Then what does the Biden regime do? They, they will involve an intermediary. They will hand off the list to the Stanford Internet Observatory or the so-called Virality Project. Why? Because they don't want their grubby fingers on the list. They want this middleman group to then go to the digital platforms and say, listen, ban all of these guys. And then the digital platforms will conform, recognizing it's coming from the government to the cheers of the media. So, I mean, look at all the, look at this octopus that is stretching across the public sector and the private sector, and that's what we're up against. Well, and in fact, they've gone to the courts. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. The Biden administration has gone to as, as high as the Supreme Court saying we want the ability to censor what is presented to Americans on social media. That's not overstating it, is it? Not at all. And, and so right there you come to how we stop it. Well, there are things that we can do as individuals, but really it needs to be stopped by the remaining institutions of power that have the ability to block and thwart and roll back the police state. The Supreme Court, of course, is one of them. Obviously, there's power in the investigative ability of the GOP House. There are Republican uh, attorneys general and, and secretaries of state and, and governors that can do things. So there's a lot of things that can be done. I think the problem here is that a lot of Republicans are a little bit like the wildebeest or the antelope that does see a movement in the trees but refuses to believe it's a predator. Oh, it's just the wind, Dinesh. Or, you know what, the line is not going to land on my back. Hopefully it will land on somebody else's back and I'll be eaten last. So it's this kind of a defeatist psychology that dominates the one party that is a bulwark against the police state. No, and in fact, I, I know they want to turn around and accuse conservatives of doing, they say, well, you're in favor of banning books. I've never been in favor of banning books. Now, if you say, are you in favor of having certain books not presented to children? I'd say, yeah, there should be age appropriateness. But once you become an adult, you can buy whatever stupid book you want to. 
and there are some stupid ones out there. I don't object to those. I do object to people in schools, say, presenting stuff to kids that they're way too young to be able to absorb. And if somebody's going to present it to them, and, and it's maybe, you know, they're giving it to kids that are too young. If the parents decide to do it, that's the prerogative of parents. But if, if the, the government run schools are saying, we're going to put this stuff in front of your kids and give them twisted ideas about sexuality and gender and everything else. Yeah, I'll push back against that. But that ain't censorship. That's that's saying make it age appropriate when they get to a certain age. Let them read whatever they want. Well, you're touching upon something that's very interesting, which is that these days, if you approach somebody on the left and you say, is America becoming a police state? They go, Dinesh, absolutely. And it's coming from you guys. It's Trump and the MAGA right that poses an authoritarian danger to our society. Now, in the movie, we take this, uh, this seriously, and we raise the question, how can we know who's right? Both sides are accusing the other of, in effect, creating a police state. And we say, look, the way to resolve this is we've got to look at what we mean when we talk about a police state. We've got to look at how this police state developed, what's its genealogy or history in the United States, uh, how is it organized, and who's running it. You're going to find that story in the new movie called Police State by best-selling author Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Back in a moment, we'll get to your calls. 866-439-5277. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. to Hamas at the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference. If you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. You know, when I look at some of the biggest political actors outside of elective office, you kind of wonder, where are all these people coming from and exactly how much do they interlink into this plan to fundamentally change the United States of America? I think make it into a socialist or Marxist kind of society uh, by any means necessary is the phrase they like to use, which to me suggests they're willing to hurt people or even kill people to make it happen. Mike Gonzalez joins me now, who's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, author of the book BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. So this is right in your lane, Mike. Welcome back. Uh, yeah. Hi, Lars. Uh, that's exactly right in my lane. And i got to tell you, they interact a lot, a lot. There's a vast far-left Marxist international global network, a web, where they interact. They're a lot better than conservatives are exchanging uh, best practices, at strategizing, at teaching each other, learning from each other. Conservatives are not good at this. They're very good at it. So what do we do about this when we've got groups like this that really are advocating for unthinkable things? I mean, when members of Congress, three or four or five of them in particular, are saying, yeah, uh, you know, Hamas has a right to go out and take these actions, and we support what they and the so-called Palestinians are doing. And And this isn't just... You know, some some some, you know, crazy activist out there. It's people elected to responsible positions in the government. Yeah, that's right. These are these are members of the squad in Congress who get classified information, who are supposed to act 
in, in, the, in the interest of the American people who are supposed to, uh, to look after national interests. They clearly do not. Uh, they, you know, the, Hamas is, has, been, has proved to be a terrorist organization uh, that, that, that carries out the most grotesque uh, atrocities, uh, including the gang rape of women, uh, cutting women's breasts in front of their children, uh, taking, cutting children's fingers off before killing them, putting a baby in an oven. These are the things that are being defended and justified, not just by the squad, but by uh, students. I'm actually optimistic because I think this is now so extreme that most Americans are going to say, what now? No, 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 no. Who, who hired these professors? Who voted for these people? Uh, and I think the scales are going to fall from their eyes, and we can create alliances with people who may be on the left. They may even want higher government, bigger government, and higher taxes, but they draw the line of gang rape. Well, let's talk about the specific comparisons and the specific ties that you've been able to identify going back the better part of a decade or more, all the way into some very familiar territory, like what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, after the death there, uh, and and after all of these other uh, incidents that we're familiar with in America, we say, oh, that was BLM, or oh, that was Antifa, but it was also Palestinian activists, literally? Yeah, I mean, Palestinians were in Ferguson. I think that, let me take 20 seconds to explain for your listeners. Sure. Ferguson was 2014. Uh, Michael Brown. BLM had just been created uh, a year earlier. So Ferguson was where where Michael Brown was shot by by a police officer named Wilson. uh, And and, and, uh, the left from all over the country was brought there by Black Lives Matter. They had these freedom rights. And people from not just all over the country, people from all over the world. So there were Palestinian delegations that were there that met with the organizers. Uh, it was Ferguson where BLM becomes a, a global network foundation. That's their actual name. And a, week, a few weeks later, in January 2015, uh, Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, finds herself in, 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 in another place in Nazareth, in the West Bank, uh, with um, with Mark Lamont Hill, a, a, a journalist, quote unquote, who was fired by CNN for saying anti-Israeli things, um, and, and they're they're completely exchanging ideas and supporting each other and, and, and strategizing. I guess I wonder, from the standpoint of the issues involved. I mean, in the case of Ferguson, it was Michael Brown with the whole fiction that was created, uh, hands up, don't shoot, all of which was wrong. Um, the the yeah. officer, Darren Wilson, who had his life ruined, I don't know if the guy will ever be able to come out in, pu- in public again, he did nothing wrong, he acted responsibly, right. he shot somebody who right. had assaulted him once and was in the process of trying to assault him a second time. The Department of Justice and everybody else found that what was done by that officer was justifiable, and yet they formed this whole thing. That's one issue. Then you've got the Palestinians who've got a, a dispute over whether or not they own the entire state of Israel and have the right to force every Jewish person off, you know, every piece of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, which is the entire country. How do those two uh, issue uh, sets kind of coincide? Uh, because what critical race theory professors have done and what these Marxist, cultural Marxist professors have done is that they have created this idiotic, oppressor oppressed narrative through which everything must be seen uh this is this is this is Karl marx himself Karl marx 
road that the history of man was the history of, of the, the, the struggle between different classes. So you fit. So who are the who are the oppressors here? Well, the oppressors in the American context are white people, uh, heterosexual uh, or heteronormative, as they would put it. Uh, I guess at its most extreme, Protestant white men uh, who are who are heteronormative. That would be the, the most oppressor type, the, the, the one that has all the, all the, all the oppressor qualifications. And then you have everybody else with different degrees of, of oppressed uh, and victimhood status. And in, in, the, in, in the Israeli context, Israel will be the oppressor, the colonizer, the white supremacist, and the, and, and, and the oppressed will be the Palestinians. In, in the case of Israel, it is particularly, it's, it's always idiotic, right? It's always yep. completely, the fact that our students are believing this, it's a beggar's belief. But if the Israelis today, more than half, are Sephardic Jews. They're no longer Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazi Jews came from Europe. Sephardic Jews come from the Middle East. In other words, they are not different. They don't look any different, Sephardic Jews, from Arabs. They, they lived in Arab lands for centuries. I mean, they're uh, all they Semitic not... people, right? Right. No, but in the case, no, but Ashkenazi Jews look differently, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jews You're right. Look Eastern European because they, they, came, they, they, they came from Eastern Europe. They lived there for many centuries. Sephardic Jews do not. They look exactly like their Arabs, you know, compatriots. So how is this a white supremacist narrative? It is not. It is only in the minds of intellectuals and the students they have indoctrinated. So as a result of that, they find, they find common cause against the rest of civilized society. And now it appears they're going to make war on Israel. And who knows? They may be doing the same kind of thing here because Joe Biden has thrown the border, border wide open. And we're allowing people to come in from the terrorist watch list, including people from the Middle East. His book is called BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. He's Mike Gonzalez, who finds his home as a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. 